Welcome into NSN Daily alongside Chris Murray. I'm Alex Margulies, and we're joined right off the top of our show with new Nevada tight ends coach Chad Savage. Just came back from San Diego. Uh, Chad, you were with Coach Norvell and his staff two seasons ago. You get down to San Diego for one year, now right back here. As a Reno guy, a Reno high school alum, I imagine working for the Wolfpack in this kind of capacity has to be kind of a dream job for you. No doubt. No, first off, I appreciate you guys taking the time to have me on the show today, but Really being a, a Reno, Nevada and a, and a sixth generation Northern Nevadan, I, it's a really a dream come true opportunity. And growing up, you're, you're always watching the Wolfpack from the Chris Alt days, the Brian Polian days. And then obviously with Jay Norvell, it was special to me because I was here when he was building the culture. And now to be back here, it's, it's a dream come true opportunity. I'm, I'm honored to be on this staff and I'm, I'm grateful for this opportunity. What was your first reaction when you were told by coach that you were going to get the job? Uh, who was your first call to? What were the emotions you were feeling? Yeah, so it was a weird process. So he, he called me, and as you guys know, there's a hiring process with the university, and I totally get that right now. At the times we're in the pandemic, but I, I called my dad right away, and then out of respect, I, I called the head coach I was working for down there at San Diego because he was the guy that I was working for at times. When I, when I hung up my playing career, he gave the opportunity to be an undergraduate assistant. And out of respect, I have nothing for respect for that guy, Coach Lindsey. So I called him right away, too. Chad, talk about some of the cultural shifts that you've seen. I mean, you like, again, you've observed this program either from a distance or now been a part of this program in, in a couple of different capacities. But talk about that culture shift that you've seen within this program and just where it's at today. No doubt. And I mean, there's three pillars that Coach Norvell leads in this program and it's respect accountability and hustle and those aren't just words that we say I mean it's it's words that we live by and that's from the top down from the head man all the way down to the equipment room from senior down to freshman and I saw when he was building it and now I've seen different teams but really the chemistry in this program right now today is one of the best chemistries I've seen and I think it's all has to do with the culture that coach Norvell and the whole program has built. What got you want to uh, get into coaching? What was it about the, the coaching uh, business that uh, intrigued you? You were a very good player at the high school level. You were the regional player of the year over guys like Austin Corbett and Devin Gray, uh, and then I played a little bit in college. But what, uh, in your mind, did you think, you know, coaching would be a good fit for me for my life? I, well, so I grew up in sports, and I do have some family members that are in the coaching profession, and I always just admire the way they did things and the way they impacted other people's lives. But had the high school career I did, went on, was able to play a little bit of college ball. But then when that opportunity closed, really the next door, I, I knew that the best thing besides playing is coaching. And I wanted to be around the game. Um, I'm a competitive person, yet I'm, I'm compassionate too. So I love impacting people, love developing relationships, and then being there between the lines, I love competing too. You know, going back to your Reno days, was Coach Avancino kind of an inspiration to you to get into coaching when he was just such a, a – the way that he went about coaching, you know, in his time there, he was obviously very well respected and, um, you know, was there for so long and you were part of his program at that time. I mean, what did you kind of absorb from him? Yeah, every coach in that program, whether it be Coach Maddock, Coach Avancino, Coach Sellers, Coach Worthen, Coach Clark, Coach McKay. I mean, just that that culture that he had too at Reno High, that outwork mentality and sort of that old school roll up your sleeves, let's go to work. Um that, that was sort of drilled in me, and that's I wore that on my sleeves every single day. And, I, again, he, he taught me more about the game. I love learning about the game every single day, and that also spiked me to get into the coaching career. You mentioned before we started taping here that there's no school you'd rather be at in Nevada, and that's probably unique because of where you grew up, obviously. What's your first memory of Wolfpack athletics or Wolfpack football? 
First memory, that's that's tough. I mean, back in the day, just going to the games when they used to have the day games at Mackey, the one o'clock kickoffs and going, playing with my Pop Warner buddies, playing football behind the scoreboard. I mean, that's something we used to look for. We almost look forward to that more than our games on Friday nights. Was there a player growing up that you just loved, uh, you know, as you kind of think back at those memories being a kid and, you know, who did you kind of emulate growing up? Yeah, that's a good question. So growing up, I was a, I was a Pop Warner running back. So I always admired Chance Kretschmeyer. I don't know if you guys remember that name. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> on a Pop Tornado uh, in the Wolfpack Hall of Fame. Uh, one of the best uh, running backs in school history, for sure. Um, I mean, a lot of people work their whole life to get a full-time assistant job. You've accomplished that by age 26. It's really a remarkable story. Um, why do you think you've been able to ascend so quickly in the profession? And you, you obviously had to leave a really strong impression on Coach Norvell your couple of years as a grad assistant for him to trust you at such a young age. Yeah, and I'm honored and I'm grateful for this opportunity because not a lot of guys, especially at this age, and really to have the opportunity to coach at this level in their hometown. But I take pride in every single day I, I step foot on campus and everything I do, it's, I think I'm here for a reason and, and Coach Norvell brought me here for a reason. And that is to give these players the tools to be successful on game day, to be successful beyond the game of football and then here to, to recruit, develop players, then to, to win football games on, on Saturdays as well. Talk about some of those kind of tools and maybe analytics and stuff like that that you kind of bring to the table that maybe some other coaches that maybe have more experience than you maybe don't quite have that kind of grasp that, that's something that you kind of bring to the table. Yeah, I mean, just starting with the room and the players on this program, like I said, so I did spend two seasons here. So I have a feel and I, I know these guys. I've had previous relationship with them, so I – I know how to work with these guys. I know how to rate with them. And then in terms of recruiting, being 26 years old, I mean, I, I speak the same lingo as some of these recruits. I know the music they're listening to. I know the stuff they're doing on, on the weekends. And so I can relate to these guys. And I love I love talking to them, FaceTiming them. I, I really take pride in recruiting and acquiring and developing those relationships. You're going to be coaching tight ends at Nevada. Uh, when you were last year, uh, Cole Turner was kind of a, a sparingly used wide receiver. And now he's one of the best tight ends in the nation. Um, how much are you looking forward to working with Cole and the other guys? And what makes Cole a potential NFL player? I mean, he was really remarkable last season. Yeah, and so I, I was fortunate to work with Cole when I was GA here with, with Coach Scott. So he was a receiver in, the, in that room those first two seasons. And then they, they made a, a shift to the tight end room. And we do have unique skill sets from the, from the five guys that we do have in this room. And then the sixth guy we'll be adding, Carlton Brown. we got unique skill sets, and we'll use them in the run game, pass game. But with Cole Turner, the thing that I've seen is the shift in his mentality every single day and the way he carries himself. He's all about business. He's a leader. He's a vocal guy. But the way he works on the weight room, on the field, I mean, that he's a guy that's that, – that's why NFL are, are drooling on a guy like Cole Turner. But – He's got length, he's got size, he's a, he's a mismatch in the pass game, and then he's a willing blocker in the run game too, and that's really what, what teams are looking for. But mainly you look at a guy that's 6'6", 240, I mean, you can't really find that in, in college football right now. Chad, you look around this entire offense, you have Carson Strong, at quarterback, who is ascending the charts and is getting more and more buzz as somebody that has a realistic shot at playing in the NFL. We just mentioned Cole Turner. There's a ton of wide receivers from Cookie to Romeo Dubs, you've got Tawa and Lee at running back. You've got an offensive line that has a lot of experience. I imagine as a coaching staff, you kind of have to look around and go, man, this is a pretty unique situation to have this loaded of an offense. How much fun is it just having an offense like this at your disposal? Yeah, I mean, it is It is pretty nice out there seeing all the weapons we have, whether it be the, the guys outside, the running backs, the quarterback, and then even up front. I mean, we, we're very, very good up there too, but 
it's our job as a coaching staff to develop these guys, prepare them, and then put them in situations too once we start spring ball that when, when it comes to fall, they're familiar with this stuff and they know what to do when they see that type of, those types of situations. The last time this program won a conference championship, you would have been, uh, what, 15 years old, 11 years ago, uh, you know, just maybe coming into high school. What would it mean to you to bring back a conference championship to this program, to your hometown, uh, and, you know, put Nevada back at the top of the map of their conference? I mean, that, that's our end goal, and the standard's always on the rise in Nevada. It's not just to win a game versus UNLV. It's not to just to win seven right. games. It's to win the Mountain West and to, to do our job, but to be and to put Nevada back on the map, I mean, I feel like that's that's why I'm here, too, and it, it, it gives me goosebumps to think about that, but that's that's why we're working every single day. Chad, you mentioned at the start of this thing, six generations here in <laughs> Reno. Tell, tell us about your family, the family story. It's got to be good. I mean, how, how they kind of got out here. I mean, what can you tell us about that? Yes, yeah, so they, they started in Virginia City, um, plumbing and heating company. Then they moved their way to Reno. And then both my parents, Len and Tawny, I mean, they've been around here in, in Reno too. Then I have an older brother, LJ, but it's a, I mean, it's a great city, great, great city to grow up in. And I'm fortunate to be here. With Savage, obviously a really famous last you got John Savage down there at UCLA, Pete Savage, uh, you know, running that Reno High baseball program. I imagine there's some tie to those Savages as well. Yeah, so uh, my dad has two two brothers. Pete is the middle brother, and John's the youngest one at UCLA. And those guys are both in the coaching profession. And so I, I did play for Pete, and the way he runs that program, it's really like a college program. But he, his whole philosophy on player development, I mean, that really stood with me. And then just talking with John, I mean, he's a hell of a recruiter. And I admire the way he does and the way he develops players too. And just the lifestyle they live and the impact they have on people day in and day out, it really touched me and it really sort of paved the road for me to get down that, that coaching profession. It's an awesome story, Chad, man. We're super pumped to have you back here in Northern Nevada, get you back in the program and uh, looking forward to getting out there in spring practice. Thanks so much for joining the show. No doubt. I appreciate you guys and appreciate everything you guys do for the local community. I thank you guys. All right, we'll have more of NSN Daily coming up just after a quick break. This Wolfpack update is brought to you by Renown Health. Welcome back to NSN Daily. Chris Murray and Alex Margulies talk about some Wolfpack sports, our renowned Wolfpack update. And before we get to baseball and softball and what they did this past weekend, Chris, about a football set to resume practice this week or at least start practice uh, they didn't really get to get going last week that was the plan to start last tuesday because of contact tracing they did have to shut down the operation but hopefully wednesday the target to start up spring football yeah that's the plan to get back out on the field or like you said get on the field for the first time uh you know they're gonna have to jam in a lot of practices if it gets delayed more than that they have 15 practices they're obviously going to want to use all of those but they don't want to switch the spring game which is may 1st they want to have fans out there and they've kind of been planning some things so um you know hopefully the contact tracing continues to go well and they're able to get out there wednesday and uh run through some practices it's actually kind of going to be like a, a game week where they're more or less practicing every day they're, the plan is to have four practices a week if they are able to get out there wednesday but yeah just some crucial time to get out there get some development for some of the younger players and one of the things that jay norvell mentioned is it almost feels like he has his full team out there spring practice can be a little bit light uh, because you lose all your seniors and you don't really replace them with your next recruiting class because they're not usually here in the fall but with all the seniors coming back they're going to be participating in spring camp so it should be pretty robust practices where they don't have to really sacrifice too much because the numbers are low all right let's go to 
what happened this weekend. And we'll start at Hickson Park. Nevada softball team, Chris, uh, continuing to play well. They had a three-game series against Utah State. Uh, we mentioned on Friday's show they were able to get a nice win uh, to start the series on Thursday. And they followed that up uh, with a split on Friday, including a pretty thrilling win uh, in game two, seven to six, and a walk-off home run from local Sedaria McAllister. Huge hit. I mean, Nevada goes down uh, one run heading into the bottom of the seventh inning and they need a comeback or they're going to get swept over the doubleheader. And Sedaria comes up huge with that home run, the walk off two run shot. And it's really been the, the story of this offense turning around. Last year, Nevada averaged just 3.7 runs per game. This year, it's 5.5 runs per game. So while the pitching has been pretty equal with what we saw last season, the offense has definitely been playing much, much better. And it's put uh, Nevada in a very good position in the Mountain West right now. They are only four and two. Those haven't played a ton of Mountain West games but it's only two and a half games behind San Diego State, and they should you know, probably get a sweep this week. They go to play New Mexico. New Mexico is 2-26 and 26 on the year. So a very good chance Nevada is able to sweep that series, maybe put themselves at 7-2 and two in conference play. And if the bats continue to hit like this, it is going to be a threat at the top of the Mountain West. The pitching has been a little bit inconsistent the last couple of weeks. Um, you know, they've gotten into some big holes because the starting pitching hasn't been as strong as we saw earlier this season. But when you got bats like uh, Nevada's had this year, you're able to come uh, back against some major deficits. And that was the case in the bottom half of that uh, doubleheader last weekend. Yeah, Sierra Mello, who hit a home run in Thursday's game, also homered in that game. Uh, Blake Crafts uh, got a win in that one. Five innings and didn't give up a run after Kendall Fritz. You mentioned kind of the inconsistency. Six runs from her in two innings, but Craft uh, came in and shut the door. Five innings, no runs, and, and allowed the, uh, the offense to, to pick up and get that comeback. So Chris, I mean, pretty solid season right now. I'm looking at 13 and nine, four and two in conference play. Uh, and things are going to get not super challenging uh, this weekend. You don't want to take anyone for granted, but New Mexico has not been a banner softball program this year. Yeah, when I looked at that this morning, I was surprised that a team has already played 28 games and won only two of them. So you would hope that you go out there and you get the sweep and you put yourself in a good position in the series after that's against Colorado State. Colorado State's only played three conference games, so a little unknown there. But, you know, Fresno State's the class of this, this conference. That's usually how it is. And, uh, you know, Nevada needs to pick against these lower-level competition in the Mountain West if they're going to go out in their first Mountain West championship ever. It's a program that since moving to the Mountain West has never won a conference championship. And as I mentioned last week, I don't think it's necessarily going to take a conference championship to potentially get into the NCAA tournament because the Mountain West is pretty strong in softball, but you want to leave no doubt. You want to put yourself in the position to go out there and get the automatic berth. So uh, I think Josh Taylor has to be really happy with where his team is. He's had a pause. He had to miss a series because of a pause with a different program. So it's been an inconsistent schedule, but um, you know, Nevada has navigated that pretty well and they've, you know, taken two out of three in their first two series in the Mountain West. I think two out of three against New Mexico would probably be a disappointment. You do have to take it just one game at a time, as they always say, but they're looking for a sweep when they head down to Albuquerque for sure. All right, Nevada baseball team, a disappointing weekend for them as they dropped two out of three to a red-hot Air Force team. They did salvage uh, a win in the series by scoring 15 runs in the finale, Chris, but the first two games, once again, it's that the late innings plaguing them. Nevada with a tie game one-to-one -one in the ninth, Air Force got that one, and then uh, took a lead into the ninth inning in game two, and uh, Air Force scoring four runs uh, in the top of the ninth inning. That was too bad because Nevada finally got a really good outing from Jake Jackson in five innings and gave up just one run, uh, but again, just couldn't close the door. Difficult pill to swallow when you have those leads late in the game and you can't shut the door, and that's been kind of the story for Nevada this year. They're three and six 
in games decided by two runs or fewer. So they have not been great in those close games. And that can obviously be the difference between just kind of being an average team and being an above average team. And right now, Nevada is playing average baseball. They're five and seven in the Mountain West. Uh, they're eight and 12 overall, uh, four and a half games back at San Diego State. And that's the team who they play at this weekend. So Nevada needs to go out there and win that series. If they go out and they lose the series to San Diego State, uh, best case scenario, they're five and a half games back. Worst case scenario, they're seven and a half games back. So this is a huge series for the Wolfpack to go on the road, to play a really good team right now, the premier team in the Mountain West at San Diego State, uh, and to go out there and have to win a series. If they don't win this series, it's going to be really, really difficult uh, to be able to win the Mountain West, which is the goal to get to the NCAA Regional. Right after that, they play Texas, which is a nationally ranked team. So the tests are not going to get any easier, but I think this is by far the biggest series of the year for the baseball team to go out there and try and keep itself at least within maybe a series or two, a little bit closer to San Diego State, where they are right now, four and a half games back. Man, talk about a crazy five-game stretch. The three at San Diego State and then Texas right now ranked at number nine in the country. It is worth mentioning Nevada does get three at home against San Diego State too. So there is still a lot of room to make up. And this year where you're playing so many Mountain West games, Nevada not necessarily out of it at this point, but you're absolutely right. I mean, they've got to go down there and at least get two out of three. And if they can get a sweep uh, at San Diego State, that would certainly put them in position to be right back in the thick of things. That's our weekend recap brought to you by Renown, and we'll do that every single Monday. Coming up next here on NSN Daily, we'll shift gears to NCAA Tournament Basketball, the Final Four, and what an incredible finish. One of the greatest, maybe, Final Four games in recent memory. Gonzaga is able to prevail against UCLA. We'll set up that and the national championship, which is coming up tonight. We'll break that down. Welcome back to NSN Daily, Chris. Uh, pretty exciting Final Four. Baylor punches their ticket against Houston. That game really never close, and uh, the Bears look like a very formidable opponent and uh, certainly a deserved team to make it to the national championship. They will play the undefeated Gonzaga Bulldogs, and it took them absolutely everything to survive a game against the 11-seeded UCLA Bruins. No one saw this coming for UCLA. I mean, they're one of the last four teams, and they barely got out of that first game against Michigan State. And yet here they were on the brink of upsetting Gonzaga. Uh, that shot by Jalen Suggs at the buzzer. I mean, I actually didn't get to see it live. I was listening on the radio, uh, and it, I, was, I almost drove my car off the road. I mean, it was just like the most <laughs> incredible finish, and I can't imagine being able to watch it on TV. But that was a heck of a basketball game. Yeah, I almost hurt myself, actually. I, I like kind of jumped up and I hit my uh, foot on the bottom of our couch and uh, you know, I ankled myself, uh, almost tore the Achilles. I mean, that to me, that was the best college basketball game I've ever seen. And that might be hyperbole, that might be living in the moment, but just the quality of offense we saw in that game. One team shot 58% from the field. The other team shot 59% from the field. Even with an overtime session, there was only a combined 19 turnovers between the two teams. There was just a really high level of play throughout that entire game. UCLA stuck with maybe the best team that we've seen in the last 40 years. We'll see if they're able to win the championship game. But uh, you have an undefeated season on the line. Uh, you have some superstars on both teams. Uh, I just thought it was an amazing game. And then the way it ends, not only going to overtime, but then winning with like a 40 foot bank shot. 
uh, after Johnny Juzang had a, a, a tie, tie game uh, put back. So, yeah, it was why you watch sports was for moments like that, for games like that. It doesn't always deliver on the biggest stage, but um, that was just a beautiful game to watch. And I'm sure UCLA fans are crushed that they didn't make it to a championship game, but you can't be anything but thrilled with how your players played in that game. The kind of resolve they had, big underdogs, and they looked every bit as good as Gonzaga for 45 minutes. And sometimes it just comes down to a ridiculous shot and a little bit of luck like Jalen Suggs got on that bank. But um, yeah, that was a real fun game. And we'll see if uh, the game against Baylor can live up to that uh, kind of standard because it's going to be really difficult to match what we saw uh, Saturday night uh, between Gonzaga and UCLA. I think I'll say this. When my team is in it, there's nothing better than watching my team like in the World Series, right? I just love World Series playoff baseball. But as kind of a casual observer and you're watching, you know, two teams that you don't necessarily care about, is there anything better in sports than college basketball on the national stage when you get into something like this, the NCAA tournament and Final Four? I mean, to me, I can be so captivated watching this, maybe a little bit more than, you know, the Super Bowl. It's more about, all right, if your team's not in it, you're going to the Super Bowl party, you got the squares, you got this, but there's just something special about college basketball when you get a game like that on that stage. Absolutely. And it's just the finality of whoever wins this game moves on and whoever loses it, their season's over. These group of guys will never be there together again. Now you get that in the NFL with their playoffs, but uh, whether it's a World Series or NBA Finals, uh, NHL hockey, like there's usually another game after. Uh, that's not the case in this tournament. And that's why it's so great. Uh, just seeing two teams have to fight with such desperation and knowing so much is on the line, uh, whether you make one mistake or one great play that swings a game. So it's been a great tournament. There's been a ton of upsets. And I think it's very fitting that we are getting Baylor and Gonzaga at the end, just because these are the two best teams in the nation. And it's very rare that you get that. Usually you'll have some upsets of number one seeds and you don't get the teams that were the best throughout the season. But both of these terms teams deserve to be in this game. And, you know, certainly Gonzaga had to fight tooth and nail. We'll see if that impacts them at all two days later, just how hard they had to fight. You know, their starters going 40 plus minutes, but um, I'm just really happy to see the two best teams and made the best team win again. You know, if this is a best of seven series, I'm taking Gonzaga, but in a one game series, um, you know, Butler's a great three point shooting team, the best three point shooting team in the nation. They shoot better than 40% from three. So if they just get a hot game from three, I mean, they're more than capable of beating Gonzaga as they showed against Houston. I mean, when this team's going offensively, they're really tough to stop as well. Yeah, and Houston's got one of the best defensive teams. They hadn't given up, I think, more than 61 points in the tournament, and Baylor dropped almost 80 on them. Uh, how much How much do you think the fatigue factor is going to be a thing? I mean, that that's tough. I mean, that's really tough to go after an overtime game. There's so much emotion uh, if Gonzaga is able to come back and beat Baylor under those circumstances, I think you have to, you know, the, of course there's the whole non-conference or their, their whole conference schedule and it's weak and you, know, you put them up against maybe some other teams that gone went undefeated. But if they go and do this and you beat Baylor, I think undefeated season, undefeated season. And it is something absolutely tremendous to celebrate, but it's going to be a challenge. Well, it's going to be a challenge, but you look at their non-conference schedule. They beat Kansas, which is a perennial blue blood by 12 points. They beat Western Virginia, which was a high seed. They beat Iowa, which was a number three seed in this tournament by 11 points. They beat Virginia, which is a great team from the ACC by 20 plus points. And then they would have had to beat Baylor, the number two team in the nation, basically the entire season. So I think they're playing for legacy. They're playing for one of the best college basketball teams ever. Obviously the only one to go undefeated in 40 plus years as well. But um, I just think emotionally it's going to be be tough to get back into it like you know there's a championship on the line but 
just physically what you went through. I mean, these are young guys. I think they'll be able to bounce back, but just the emotion of winning a game like that, maybe it helps them. I don't know. They haven't played a lot of close games. And I think that was what was really cool about that from Gonzaga's perspective is this was the first time they were really challenged all 40 minutes and they had to make plays down the stretch and they were able to stand up in that situation. Now, will they do it against Baylor? I think a lot of it comes down to their three-point shooting. Gonzaga is a really good three-point shooting team, but in this tournament, they haven't shot the ball great. And as I mentioned, Baylor has that. It's funny, we always talk about defense when championships and defense is important, but this is by far the first and second best teams offensively in the entire nation. And that's why they're in this game is because the offense has carried them. And I do want to mention, you know, the women's uh, final four and just seeing Arizona go on that run and beating UConn, shocking everybody in that game, uh, their coach getting fired up, throwing a little middle finger. At the <laughs> um, you know, just the storyline of her being uh, kind of late for the, the championship game because she was breastfeeding for her kid. Uh, like you don't even think about those things on the men's side, but all the things that the women had to go through, some of the inequalities that we saw earlier in their tournament, uh, and then for that game to come down to literally the last shot and Stanford to get a win, uh, you know, for their first national championship in almost 30 years for one of the best coaches in NCAA history, men's or women's. I think she has 13 final fours uh, to her name and she had won titles in 90 and 92, but it had been a long time since they were able to get there. So it's just been a treat uh, having missed both of these tournaments last year. Yeah. Of, and just being able to see this, this to me is, is my most fun event to watch every single year because of all those upsets and the great play that we see. And just, you get so many games, they're, they're bound to be some great ones. And we've just been very fortunate that the final four has delivered the great ones and we haven't really seen blowouts. And, um, you know, we've been treated to some really, really good games over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I think you made a great point earlier about just the difference in the fact that, like in the NBA, you're probably gonna have a similar team back most of the time, right? Chances are you will, uh, sometimes not. But this is pretty unique in college basketball where, you know what, you're not going to see these guys play together again. And, and to me, I think it is refreshing to see a national championship with offense because let's face it, like some of these national championship games or some of these games in the tournament this year that have been like in the 40s. Yeah. It, I just you know, like some of these games that get slowed down, you know, like when Nevada played San Diego State and they're just like, it's just kind of like a slog. It's just not as fun to watch. You know what I mean? Like I want to see some high octane, high octane basketball. And that's exactly what we're going to get. Uh, all right, I'll give you pr prediction time. People are going to watch this at 10 o'clock. We've already, uh, games already uh, going to be, have happened, but I'm going to go, I'm going to go with Baylor. I'm going to go Baylor. I think it's just going to be too tough to get the turnaround. And this is a Baylor team that was loaded last year and they were ready to go and didn't get to play. And I think there's, they all came back this season. They've been so good. And what I saw the last two games from them uh, is a team that's playing at such a high level. So I'm going to go Baylor. What are you going to do, Chris? I'll go Gonzaga. I've had them number one on my uh, AP top 25 from the preseason until now. Baylor really hasn't been tested. I mean, that Arkansas game was their closest game and that was a nine point win. So they've been fantastic and they've been blowing teams out uh, and they've played some pretty quality teams. Wisconsin can be tricky. Villanova obviously has championship pedigree. We saw how well Arkansas was playing and then just to bushwhack Houston. So it, it's not going to be an easy game by any means, but uh, maybe rooting with my heart a little bit more than my mind. I, Gonzaga is a four and a half point favorite. So uh, the math is with them as well but certainly just based on how they played two days ago you have to feel like Baylor's in a better position just because of it was a smoother trip to where they're at now but it just seems like a team of destiny to a degree when you're banking in 40 footers to win the game <laughs> something's got to be going right so I'll take Gonzaga in a close one I'll I'll, uh, I'll take Baylor with the points so I think it's going to be you know within four or five points but uh, I'll pick the Zags to finish off that undefeated season it would be awesome. It would be awesome to see that happen for Gonzaga to get that out of the West Coast Conference, you know, to, to be able to do this uh, and to really cement their program like this as a national champion, as an undefeated national champion would be something 
uh, to see. Definitely looking forward to watching that one tonight. Coming up next year on NSN Daily, we will recap some high school football action from Friday. Plus, we've got some bowl games uh, coming up this week, uh, Friday and Saturday. And we'll tell you who's going to play in those when we come back. All right, so the regular season wrapped up in high school football on Friday night. And Chris, uh, the big winner, Spanish Springs, scoring a win over their rival out in Sparks, taking down Reed. And that advances them to the 5A championship bowl game, whatever we're calling that. That's going to be on Saturday against Damani Ranch, who is idle. But this is a huge win for the Cougars. Absolutely. Puts them in the regional championship game for the first time in their history. Uh, they opened right around the same time as Damani Ranch in the early 2000s. And Damani Ranch has obviously turned into a premier football program in the northern area. Uh, Spanish Springs kind of been mo more known as a baseball, softball, basketball kind of school. I mean, they've won a ton of regional championships in those three sports. Uh, they've won some state championships as well in softball. But uh, the football program getting some love. And you have to give some credit out there because they started the season 0-2. And you could think at that point, OK, it's such a short season, we're only playing five weeks. We're going to fold it up and, uh, you know, not make any kind of regional championship. But they were able to mount a comeback and um, they had to win this game by double digits and they won by 10 points because of the tiebreaker situation. We read Spanish Springs, McQueen all beating each other once in the kind of that round robin situation. Uh, and Spanish Springs has been very good when they haven't turned the ball over. That was the issue in the first two games. I think they had six turnovers uh, in the last minute lost to McQueen. So that was a huge, huge issue. But they've really cleaned up. Uh, their level of play and now they get to play for a regional championship against Damani Ranch which to me is, is still a pretty heavy favorite um, but the way Spanish Springs defense played was really impressive giving up only 13 points to Reed last week when Reed was coming off a 60 plus point game against McQueen so uh, the Cougars are playing their best football at the right time for sure. So Damani Ranch Spanish Springs noon on Saturday that'll be a live telecast here on Nevada Sportsnet as part of Friday Night Rivals. Uh, you know, it's interesting, Damani Rance idle this past week, as was Bishop Minogue, as they had their game canceled. Uh, we heard some rumblings that Bishop Minogue wanted to play uh, Damani Ranch again, even in a scrimmage capacity, didn't get that. Uh, your thoughts on that, Chris? Uh, if it was a scrimmage, that's one thing. If it was going to be a regular season game and Damani Ranch could have potentially lost its number one uh, seed out of the Sierra, uh, you obviously turn that down. Like, you, yeah. you know, you, you want to be able to play in the regional championship game because you just beat Minogue by 20 points and, uh, you know, you feel like you've earned that spot. Now, if it's a scrimmage situation, you get these kids a little bit more experience. I could see wanting to do that, but maybe Damani Ranch also kind of wants the week off to get prepared for whoever they're going to play, be a little bit more well-rested, work on whatever they want to work on in practice. So, um, you know, Damani Ranch won it on the field. They had the right to make that decision, and their decision obviously was to take the bye and uh, get ready for it's going to be Spanish Springs, but they didn't know at the time, maybe try and scout a few different teams and use that Friday to look at maybe different opponents rather than be playing a game specifically themselves. All right, so that game, again, Damani Ranch, Spanish Springs, noon Saturday. Then Reed will play Minogue on Friday night. Douglas will play McQueen, and Reno will play Carson. That wraps out the 5A season. Just great that we got a, an entire season for, for high school football. I mean, it was played March. It was weird. It was different. But I, I know the kids. I know the coaches, the parents, everybody involved in this has been so thrilled that they got a season in because three months ago, it was still looking kind of grim. Absolutely. Yeah, it was not looking good at all. I mean, the decision was made after when practice was supposed to begin 
that they would be given the green light, that the COVID test would be there to be able to make sure everybody uh, had to test at least once a week. So, um, you know, you, you were talking about about two weeks before games were supposed to start, and these players didn't think they were going to have a season. So for them to play four or five games, to be able to get some experience, to be able to get some film out there if they're trying to get to the next level in college, just to be able to have fun with their friends and have some fellowship and uh, now play for a championship. Like these are going to kind of be four different championships. Yeah, there's only one regional championship, but you have – uh, you know, kind of bowl championships. That's something that none of these players have been able to experience before. So maybe we'll give all these bowl games little names. Uh, I don't know that we'll have time to make trophies up, but, uh, uh, you know, give it a little bit of love and make it uh, feel even a little bit more special than what a regular season finale would typically be. All right. We'll have a lot of discussion, hoping to get the coaches on the show this week and lots of previews as we wrap up high school football here in Northern Nevada. Coming up next here on NSN Daily, the best and worst things about every Mountain West football stadium. That was a leftover question from last week's mailbag. We'll dive into that. Continuing on here on NSN Daily on our Monday, alongside Chris Murray, I'm Alex Margulies. We're going to go through now to a mailbag leftover question from last week, Chris. And this is from Damon Hershenson uh, at Nevada Pack Fan. What is the single best and also the single worst thing about every Mountain West Conference football stadium. We'll go in alphabetical order. So we'll start down in Vegas at UNLV Allegiant Stadium. What do you think the best and worst thing is about that stadium? Best thing is it's a brand new NFL stadium. So you really can't beat that. That's literally the best stadium. Pretty sick, yeah. I do think the 90 foot tall uh, torch that they have uh, is really cool. And then you can see the strip behind it. So it basically has every bell and whistle that you'd want on the stadium. I think the worst thing is it also has an NFL capacity of 65,000 and UNLV typically draws about 15,000 people. College games are all about the atmosphere and the student section. You're going to have 15,000 people in a 65,000 capacity stadium. I just don't think the atmosphere is going to be as fun as it would be if it was in a smaller stadium, but it's probably a fair trade-off considering you can recruit guys and say, look at this, you're going to be playing at the Raider Stadium. It's going to be awesome. All right, let's go to the islands, Aloha Stadium on Oahu. Uh, the obvious is you get to go to Hawaii. Like that's, <laughs> that's number one. So that's pretty clear as to why that's great. But you've got something from down, down into the – this is an old stadium, so there's a lot of kind of funky stuff when you walk around Aloha Stadium. Uh, tell us about what's hiding in the bowels of Aloha Stadium. There's a weird Michael Jackson mural uh, that put a lot of weight on him for sure. But yeah, you definitely walk around some of these older stadiums and you find some weird stuff. And that Michael Jackson mural stood out to me. I put a picture of it on Twitter like seven, eight years ago, and I dug it back up for this specific article. I would also say the tailgating. You cannot beat tailgating at Aloha Stadium. I don't know that any of those fans actually go to the game because the <laughs> just packed and then you get into the stadium and it's almost like there's nobody there. Um, but the, the tailgating is just off the hook. It's probably one of the best in the NCAA in terms of the downside. I mean, it's literally falling apart. Hawaii is not mm -hmm. able to play in the stadium anymore. It's been condemned. They're going to play at a different uh, campus uh, stadium and they're building a new stadium moving forward. So we've seen the last of the rainbow Warriors at Aloha stadium, just because of the fall mm -hmm. in the stadium right now. All right, let's go to Fresno state. Uh, you can't include the doghouse grill as to why the stadium's <laughs> the best. Cause that would, that's the obvious answer. Uh, is being able to get the get the tri-tip sandwich from the doghouse. But the stadium itself, you're uh, you're kind of enamored with the, the, the end zones a little bit. Yeah, it's red and white checkered look. I don't know. I like that for some reason. And it's kind of a suck-in stadium. You see a lot of suck-in uh, arenas for basketball, but not very much for football. So you kind of walk and the stadium is below you. So that's kind of a cool feel. The worst thing, obviously, it's in Fresno. And who wants to go to Fresno? Yeah, I know, right? All right, San Jose State. Uh, best thing. Is there a best thing about the C CEFCU Stadium? 
Oh, they're remodeling it. So hopefully when okay. they're done, there's something really cool about it. It does have a open air press box, which I enjoy because the weather's nice enough for that. That's pretty rare in the Mountain West. And I also put that it hosted two quarterfinal games in the 1999 Women's World Cup. So they've had some pretty historic events there. Uh, the worst thing is it's, it's really far away from campus. So the attendance is pretty low. You don't see a lot of students out there. But hopefully post-renovation, it's one of the nicer stadiums in the Mountain West. They're certainly putting a lot of money into it. All right, let's go right here in Reno, Mackey Stadium, the views, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, if you're sitting in those East Bleachers, Pevon Peak in the background, you get a sunset. Um, it's a beautiful setting to, to watch a football game for sure. So that's my favorite thing. The worst thing is it does have a bit of a high school feel. It has the track around the stadium, which is pretty rare. You don't see that in colleges very much anymore. And just neither of the end zones are enclosed. Typically, you'll have an enclosed end zone for a lot of these stadiums, at least one, if not two. So they've done some renovations. The club level is very nice. They have improved it. Uh, obviously, a big new video board. But um, you kind of get a high schooly feel with the track and just with the, the bleachers set up. They do have the seat backs, though, and that's pretty rare. There are a lot of stadiums that don't have seat backs, even like Notre Dame, they don't have seat backs. So uh, there have been improvements, but I would say it's probably closer to middle or lower part of the Mountain West if you're just looking at stadiums. All right, here's one that doesn't even exist anymore. San Diego State right now, they are an orphan. They're playing like what, Orange County and Carson or something like that. Yeah. Uh, so the, I call it Qualcomm, I guess the last, it was called SDCCU stadium last, yeah. um, kind of a dump. I mean, I actually did see a baseball game there as well. When I was a kid, that was pretty cool. And you, you yeah. kind of did, gave a nod to baseball, even over the football prowess. The best thing, Tony Gwynn played there for 20 years when it was called Jack Murphy Stadium. All these stadiums have so many names nowadays, but it was literally torn down last uh, month. So nobody will be visiting it again. San Diego State is building a brand new stadium on that exact site, and I think it will be really cool moving forward. But can't say anything too positive about a stadium that doesn't exist anymore. So uh, that thing is gone. All right, War Memorial Stadium in Wyoming. Uh, it's an interesting spot. It's pretty cool. Uh, and the trees a little bit got to visit there a few years ago what do you like the most about being in Laramie at that stadium they sing a song during the game called in beer there is no heaven uh, so the student section asks the band to play the song whenever they ask uh, the band plays it the whole crowd sings it so that's one of the really cool traditions uh, at that stadium where they play the exact same song every single uh, game all right uh worst thing it's pretty old yeah there's, there's not there's zero seating in the end zones which is kind of weird and it's also built in 1950, which makes it the oldest stadium in the Mountain West. So it's dilapidated to a degree. It's had a number of renovations, but showing its age a little bit. Okay, the next one, we're going to Albertson Stadium in Boise. Uh, really nice suites. You don't like the blue turf. It's iconic, though. So people love, I mean, a lot of people still love going there for the blue turf. You're calling that the worst thing, though. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of the blue turf. It's fine. Like, Overrated. It, yeah, that's that's the worst thing. The best thing is definitely the suite level. Uh, it's an amazing suite level. There is a ton of suites up there. And there's just some beautiful views of the whole city. I mean, Boise is a really beautiful city. It's called the City of Trees. And there's a great canopy of trees out there. And you get it on a fall afternoon. And there's some amazing views for sure. Just more of the city than even the field. Obviously, they got great views of the field as well. You know, this is the next thing. I would love Nevada to try and implement something like this. Colorado State, they have a brand new stadium. Got to visit there a couple of years ago. And they have this new Belgium porch. That it's kind of like this beer garden. That's pretty cool. I think that could be something Nevada. I'd love to see them do that. Maybe yeah, if they just did another little twist. They put in the north end zone. Uh, it cost $220 million in 2017 to build. But that north end zone, like you said, is just called the New Belgium Porch. And it's just kind of an open area where they've got a beer garden. Uh, you know, they've got some bars, a drink rail. And you could just walk around and mingle and watch the game from there. Like you don't need to necessarily have a seat 
in the actual seating area to be able to go and enjoy the game. So it'll be really difficult to do if you're Nevada, but it, it's probably the coolest place to watch a Mountain West football game. Obviously, it's a brand new stadium, so that helps. But um, it's just a really, really great place to hang out on a nice fall afternoon, have a couple beers. You got the game in the background. You've got some TVs all around you. So a uh, really nice social space in the Colorado State Stadium. Honestly, I, I, is Dream South Stadium in New Mexico, there's really not much to even – I don't even think it's really worth talking about. There's not much going on there. Uh, Falcon Stadium is pretty sweet. Uh, An Air Force, uh, they parachute into the stadium. Yeah, the wings of blue parachute into the stadium with the game ball. That's a cool tradition. That's probably the coolest thing for most people. For me, it's that they have a hot chocolate machine in the press box. Uh, one of only two places that has that. San Diego State also had that. But it's always super cold when you go there. So the hot chocolate machine is a savior for sure. All right, Maverick Stadium at Utah State. They did renovate that recently. They've got kind of a cool area for their team. Mm -hmm. uh, what sticks out about uh, Maverick Stadium to you? Yeah, two, 2015 renovation to make it much, much nicer. Um, I just think the athletic academic complex uh, on the north end of the stadium is really, really cool. That's what every school would love to have. Basically attached right to the football field. They have a gigantic uh, video board and parking also is great. Uh, you hear a lot of complaints about parking at almost every stadium in the country. Parking at Maverick Stadium, you're basically right on site and there's a ton of it. So that's really nice. The worst thing uh, is that they once made Ryan Radke and Chris Vargas do the radio call <laughs> from like an old broken down Pepsi van. Uh, and I put a picture. If you want to see the picture, it's an amazing picture. Uh, but I remember that game. It was so cold. And I did like a pregame radio hit with them. They were literally sitting in a <laughs> as they were doing the renovation. And I, I don't think either of those guys are super happy with that situation. It like no. App, I think, where you could get like Pepsi though. So that's, a <laughs> but it was the weirdest thing I've ever seen from somebody calling a game in an old Pepsi van. The glamorous life sometimes of the, of the broadcasters. Uh, Utah State has like these weird gutters, which is when you're filming, actually, it almost took down Brian. It actually did take out Brian Smudio a few years <laughs> ago. Uh, I thought we lost him that day. Uh, James Butler was coming towards him and, and, and thankfully uh, he didn't lose an ankle or a knee, but there's like these crazy gutters. I don't know how somebody hasn't gotten hurt there at Utah State. So that's, I definitely stands out about me. All right. You can read that whole article, NevadaSportsNet.com. Murray's mailbag coming up this Wednesday. We'll wrap things up here on NSN Daily right after this. All right. Before we go here on NSN Daily, Packers quarterback Aaron Rodgers guest hosting Jeopardy, Chris. Uh, he was a celebrity champ at one point. Yeah, I did watch that episode. He loves Jeopardy. Uh, he talked about his preparation to be able to host for this two-week period. He watched a lot of them on Netflix. He had a bunch on his DVR, and he, like, would pour over and just watch exactly what Alex Trebek was doing. And he said that there is a viral moment from the first episode that he's taping, which will come out on Monday, and that he thought that he crushed it. So this maybe is his retirement plan, is to go and host Jeopardy. I mean, he does seem like a bit of a geek, so um, I'm going to look forward to it. They've had all these different guest hosts. This is the first sports one, so I'll be tuning in. Yeah, he's got a great personality. You know, he, he's an interesting guy, and he's one of those guys that can – he has transcended sports into culture. You know, he's done the, the state – you know, discount double check and all that kind of stuff. So he's made a nice uh, – a little career for himself, and I think it'll be fun to watch him on Jeopardy. Coming up this week on NSN Daily, we'll chat with Ollie Osborne, the former Minogue golfer now at SMU. He's playing in the Masters. That's really cool. We'll also have Sam Harned from the Nevada's ball golf team and plenty more coming up all week long. For Anthony Rezik behind the scenes, Chris Murray, I'm Alex Margulies. We'll see you guys tomorrow.